0: Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Monday, February 12, 2024. Authorities in Upper Nile State say calm has returned to Nasir County after weekend clashes between South Sudan Army and some militia. And that
1: side of the of the civilian, they have a fire wounded, no death. And, and that side of the soldiers, there's a sudden death, no wounded. The situation
0: now is called on. And a Sudan and South Sudan researcher takes a look at the drivers of conflict in the contested ABA area.
2: We have to remember that Abiy has been waiting for a political resolution to his future now for over a decade. It was promised a referendum to run concurrently with the South Sudanese referendum on whether it wanted to join South Sudan, and it never got that referendum.
0: We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Residents of Nasir County in Upper Nile State are calling for the deployment of necessary unified forces in the area after weekend clashes. Fighting erupted on Saturday and continued on Sunday morning in Nasir town between some fishermen and members of the South Sudan People's Defense Force. Some residents say calm
3: has returned to the area. Ma'amir Abraham Court reports for VOA from Malakal. The Police Inspector for Criminal Investigations Department in Nasir County, Upper Nile State, Jikan Gang, says at least seven people were killed in the conflict that started on Saturday night and ended on Sunday morning between some fishermen and members of the South Sudan People's Defense Forces in Nasir. Gang says Kamas return to the county, and families who fled from the town are returning home.
1: There are the people who are uh, who are going to port. the pitching. The government side, they went there, and they they killed one person from uh, those who are pitching, and uh, two wounded uh, in uh, in the mid, uh, mid-night, around 11 o'clock yesterday at night. Yeah, and in the morning, around, around 6, those of the government, they came out, and they uh, they came with the two ways so some they went uh, uh to uh, high school and some they went to the river the side so those who are uh, went to the river side they uh, starting shooting the people and that side of the of the civilian they have the fire wounded, no death and and that side of the soldiers Good, no the now is called on.
3: He says the police is awaiting the ceasefire and transitional security arrangement, monitoring and verification mechanism, a body mandated to oversee security arrangements to dispatch a team to the area.
1: We are not investigating that the case because the people who are in the death now are still in the barracks. We are waiting for the dose of uh, Citizen. They say they are supposed to come this uh, afternoon.
3: Neil Gadquad, a clinical officer with the Universal Network for Knowledge and Empowerment Agency, which runs a hospital in Nasser, says several people were killed during the clashes.
1: We received almost five wounded, in which one of them was died. One one died in the trial civilian. It was yesterday, last today. Today, one person has died. That was wounded this morning. That means there are two deaths from the civilian side and five from the government soldiers.
3: He says the necessary unified forces should be deployed in Nasir Town to protect civilians. But quote says the unified forces could prevent future aggression in the area.
1: This unified force that will graduate recently should come and take the, the, the control. There are no unified force. Only these people who no, always fighting with the, the civilians in the ground. If the, the unified force are now abroad, there should be no fighting. Seriously, there civilians want this uh, new graduated force to come in order to live peacefully in the town. They fear a lot because their house was burnt.
3: Lamriak, Relief and Rehabilitation Commission coordinator in Nasser County, calls on the government to implement the security arrangement to end attacks and killings of civilians.
1: What is needed is uh, the, the, the leadership of the country to take action against uh, such acts, because uh, these uh, army were uh, uh, supposed to protect the civilians. So one of the solution is to implement the treaty agreement, so that those who are part of the uh,
3: security arrangement should protect. Uh, Several areas across the country have recently experienced waves of violence, including a BI and twitch, as well as the attack on police officers while traveling to Kwajok over the weekend. The commissioner of Nasir County, Duol Kunthian, issued a report saying an unknown number of civilians drowned in River Sobat during the clashes. He says he is still coordinating with the SSPDF Special Force Commander to ensure tension is controlled. Attempts to reach the commissioner for further comments were futile. For VOA News, I am Amir Kwat in Malakal.
0: Still on clashes, recent weeks have witnessed a surge in violence in the contested region of Abyei claimed by both Sudan and South Sudan. The latest wave of intercommunal attacks resulted into burning of villages, deaths of uh, dozens, including peacekeepers and humanitarian workers displacements of thousands of civilians. Nabil Biadio spoke with Joshua Cruz, a Sudan and South Sudan researcher who ordered a paper last year entitled Attacked from Both Sides, Abyei's Existential Dilemma to explore the underlying factors fueling the conflict in Abyei and potential solutions. We have to remember that
2: Abyei has been waiting for a political resolution to its future now for over a decade. It was promised a referendum to run concurrently with the South Sudanese referendum on whether it wanted to join South Sudan, and it never got that referendum. Instead, it was invaded by the Sudanese army, and the Sudanese army have never left the north of the territory. So, while the Dinka, the area's residents, did get to move back to central Abye, they never moved back to their villages in the north. Instead, what we saw is SAF taking up positions
4: in the north of Abye, and though there is a UN peacekeeping force, UNISFA, that's
2: supposed to patrol and ensure the protection of civilians in a demilitarized Abbey. That force has never attempted to actually demilitarize the North. That was the situation up to 2022. And then the Mock were attacked from the South as well. They're very close compatriots. The Twitch thinker attacked them coming up from Warwick State, looking to control the market, and it got... And, and, the, and control the humanitarian hub of Agok. And that was important because Agok was where the people fled from Abyei town when the Sudanese army invaded in 2011. Now, in theory, according to Twitch authorities, that's a territory that is claimed by the Twitch, but there has been a ruling on the territory of Abyei and it's very clear that Agok is inside the territory of Abyei as it was given by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. So we really have to see this attack as a, an economic claim to try to take control of a Cox market. These attacks started, remember, in 2022. They've raised the market. They've displaced the population correct. from the south of Africa. Correct.
0: That's the a south. net market, correct?
2: Yes, that's a net market, yeah. The reason for this is that the Twitch themselves are a marginalized community in terms of where, after Bonaparte left the governorship, they haven't felt themselves as strongly represented either in national government or in state government as other stronger dinka sections within Wara. So they've really atta- attacked what they take it as, as a weak mock dinka stuck between Sudan and South Sudan. So it's one marginalised group preying on another, and that was the overall situation, the struggle for economic control of a net market and of a god. The recent violence, uh, last week, South president, Salva gave an order that um, Guy Masek, who's a Bulnur prophet, um, should leave Twitch County. Now, Guy Meshek has relatives among the Twitch, and he's also close to his other relatives, Stephen Boyd, the rebel leader. And he has been considered a threat by the Bulnur leadership, and as we know, the Bulnur constitute not just the county commissioner, but also the security advisor of Salva Pierre and also the governor of unity, Nguyen Montuil, and of course his brother back in So they thought that Guy was a threat, and they wanted to push him back into Mayom and remove his sanctuary in Twitch County. And what this led to was a more general movement against um, the Nuer, both in Abbey Town, which led to some disputes in the market, but also that led to a protest by the Twitch, who didn't want Guy Mache to leave because he's been fighting for them against the Mok in Abbeville, among other things. And so instead you've got an attack, you've got attacks in the south of Abbeville, this sort of militaristic belligerent stance by the Twitch that Gauchet should not leave. And you also got the attack of the returnees in Abye-Mnum, in on the border between um, the Ring administrative area and Unity. You saw it. a series, yeah. yeah, a series of violent attacks. Um, during the current conflict really triggered by this executive order of Salva Keers to have Guy Mishap return to my own County?
0: So yes, that, that, that explains the, the recent uptick in violence there, but attacks on Abiyay and the ABA people have been going on for some time. Why does this issue uh, seem so chronic and uh, Juba is seemingly unable to resolve it?
2: Well, I think it's not just that Juba is unable to resolve it. I think we have to see that a lot of Juba's attempts to resolve it have made the situation worse. And the reason for that is that both the Twitch and the North have deep roots in South Sudanese politics and in the branches of the military. And so a lot of the figures who've tried to intervene in this situation, from the Division 3 commander, to um, some of the people leading the Peace Committee, including the vice, one of the vice presidents, have been accused of being partisan figures. So there's very little trust that Juba can play the role of neutral mediators between these groups and there's a lot of local interests from um, the Twitch in maintaining the current situation which is effectively the depopulization in fact there are no people left in Southern Aviate.
0: And as someone who's been observing this closely, you'll be writing and following this, if the solutions proposed by Juba are not working and seem to exacerbate the situation, what would work? What needs to happen?
2: One thing that could work, if it Actually, got proper international backing would be some deployment of Dr. Francis's Dr. Francis Deng's proposal, which was approved by the Notting community um, a couple of years ago, which would be to make Abia. Abbey- a genuine protectorate, a demilitarized zone, until the, its future has been determined in terms of relations between Sudan and South Sudan as to where the, the territory of Abiyya should go. So that would be a genuine demilitarized zone with an actual peacekeeping force to protect civilians. But of course, for that to happen would require the agreement both of Salva but more importantly of Sudan. And it's not clear even who one would ask in Sudan for that sort of approval at this measure, because not only is Sudan, of course, struck and riven by conflict between the RSF and South, it's also the case that the Miss as a constituency are torn between Bolhan and Hemantin.
0: That's Joshua Cruz, a Sudan and South Sudan researcher who authored a paper last year entitled Attacked from Both Sides, Abiy's Existential Dilemma. He was speaking with my colleague, Nabil Biajo from New York last week. A Juba-based South African journalist is set to roll out a new podcast on polygamy in South Sudan. JD Rama Ramalapa says the podcast aims to tell a different story on the impact of polygamy on South Sudanese society. For VOA News, Juliana Shapai reports from Juba.
5: The podcast titled Arusa, which means a bride in Arabic, will take a look at polygamy through the eyes of a South Sudanese man who is married to an American who chose to practice polygamy. South African journalist J.D. Ramalapa is the producer of the podcast. She says some people in South Sudan are not brave to talk about polygamy publicly. Ramalapa says... This attitude might change very soon.
6: I hope to really like to, to create a safe space for people to talk about things that matter. You know, families are the, the foundation of our societies and our communities, um, the world that we live in. So we need to get it right there at the beginning so we can raise the, the type of children and families and societies that would, you know, support human rights, stand for what matters and then grow. As, as a community, instead of always being in conflict over things that we could have just talked about, so I am hoping that people will feel freer and more open and be more willing to share their stories about um, polygamy, which had a wide, which has a wide impact. I mean, it's 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 really wider than what the podcast
5: discusses. Michael Achyid-Mading is a South Sudanese athlete who has opened up about his polygamous life. Mading, who has two wives, says he hopes his story could help the younger generation of South Sudan make wise decisions and engage in tough conversation about polygamy.
0: For the men who think that uh, they can have more wives, uh, have more kids, but they are not responsible to, to be there for their kids and, uh, and the whole family. Uh, I think it would be the purpose of being uh, a tradition, try to pass on the young people the way forward uh, to live together as love, family. So I hope they will get that message.
5: Sari Mading is an American consultant who has been working and living in South Sudan since 2017. She married Mading in 1996 in the United States. Sari says... She knew one day her husband could end up marrying a second wife in South Sudan. She says she did not resist getting into polygamous life due to her exposure to different cultures.
7: My hope is that people who are in polygamous relationships that are maybe not as stable as they would want them to be, that they would find ways to make it work. My hope is that young women who are thinking that, oh, I, I don't mind being a second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, that they really think about what it means for them in the long term. My hope is that men are able to really have this conversation about the pressures that families put on them to to bring another wife or to have more children. Really understanding what they are physically, mentally, emotionally and financially capable of doing before they do it.
5: A 27 years old Adele Ring is the second wife of Mading. She says she got married in 2020 and has two kids with Mading. Adele says... She married Mading out of love, and she was not forced to do so by her relatives. She says she knew Mading was married.
6: I feel okay I'm happy like I'm the one who have a choice, even when i have a, I was a second wife, and I'm the one choice in our culture. We have to use this of second wife, even my mom is his first wife and my dad have a second wife, and in our culture, something like you can take your your and give it to another who will take care with is not good. But I'm happy that I'm the one have a choice to be a second, and I'm happy for this second. Nothing attack me. I feel well. We get a little
5: long. Polygamy is practiced in many African societies, including South Sudan. Some communities in South Sudan consider having many wives and children as a sign of wealth and social prestige. J.D. says the podcast scheduled for a launch at Baobab House in Juba on 14th of February, followed by a panel discussion on love issues and polygamy in South Sudan. For VOA News, I'm Juliana Shiappai in Juba.
0: You are tuned to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Israeli Prime Minister says his country will launch a military ground operation in Rafah. Find out why
3: after the break. Hello, listener of South Sudan In Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots all you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number plus +12026308011 that is plus +12026308011.
0: You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from The Voice of America. Despite mounting criticism, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has defended his intention to launch a military ground operation on Rafah. That's the border town currently sheltering more than one million Palestinians who say they have nowhere to go. VOA's Veronica Baldrass Iglesias has the story.
4: A few days after U.S. President Joe Biden described the military response in the Gaza Strip as, quote, over the top, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared on ABC's This Week show and reminded the world about the Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 people and turned 240 into hostages.
8: Uh, We were attacked, unprovoked attack, murderous attack on October 7th, the worst attack on Jewish people since the Holocaust. And let me tell you, uh, I I think we've responded uh, in a way that goes after the terrorists and tries to minimize the civilian population in which the terrorists embed themselves and use them as human shields.
4: More than 28,000 Palestinians, many of them women and children, have been killed in the war, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Netanyahu dismissed those figures, adding that while a plan is in the works to get civilians out of harm's way, his military will go ahead with a ground operation in Rafah. More than 1.4 million Palestinians, many of them displaced Gazans, are sheltering in the border town. The United Kingdom, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia have voiced concerns.
8: Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying, lose the war keep Hamas there. And Hamas has promised to do the October 7th massacre over and over and over again.
4: Entire families live in tents in Rafah and say they have nowhere else to go. Laila Abu Mustafa is one of the affected. If there will be more displacement, I'm not moving. I'm on the Egyptian border from
7: one side and east of Rafah from the other side. I can't move.
4: In Tel Aviv, meanwhile, protesters demanding the release of hostages still in Hamas' hands blocked the Ayalon Highway on Saturday. Efrat Machikwa's uncle is still in captivity. We are here today to tell everybody that we're so fed up with what's going on. And we know the people are with us is and it's about time. Netanyahu was asked on ABC whether he knows how many of the roughly 132 hostages in captivity are still alive.
8: I think uh, enough to warrant the kind of efforts that we're doing uh, and we're, we're going to try to do our best to get all those who are alive back and frankly also the bodies of the dead. In
4: his assessment, the military pressure applied to Hamas was a key factor in securing the recent release of 110 hostages and affirmed that, quote, victory is within reach. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington.
0: From Washington, we move to Nigeria, where one non-profit is on a mission to digitize the country's history. They are doing so by uploading old copies of newspapers from 1960, the year Nigeria gained independence until today. Timothy Obiazu has
9: more from Lagos. Page by fragile page, these old Nigerian newspapers are being scanned and uploaded to a back-end server. It's part of a project started by former Nigerian journalist Fouad Lawal. He says the idea came to him when he was working in a newsroom years ago.
10: When you want to find answers and like build context for your stories, um, it's hard to find archival stuff. I'm very sure you struggle to find archival footage about Nigeria. Um, in our case, it's hard to find like even like just basic information. Uh, and so the question became, like, what would it look like if we tried to make all of this history accessible.
9: But not just accessible to people. Lawal also wants to use all this data to make sure African stories are a part of any artificial intelligence base of knowledge.
10: We are at the dawn of a new information age um, by way of AI. And when you use like these tools, this, these AI tools, one of the things you quickly learn is that African information is grossly underrepresented, right? It's it's barely right about anything in the context of Nigeria.
9: This project hopes to change that. The server currently holds more than 60,000 pages of what could become Nigeria's first interactive digital newspaper archive. Historic events across six decades, including military coups, civil war and notable elections, have so far been captured. The project has attracted nearly $40,000 in donations and is driven by volunteers like Boyega Taiwo.
0: I joined Archiving in April last year, um, so almost a year now. We come here every day, we scan, um, we catalog, um, we log on our notion um, just to track progress and uploading on the AWS. Coming here every day, uh, flipping through pages, um, it just helps. It does something. It helps, um I think, knowledge, right? Like, there's a lot of things that we've learned.
9: Once all the material is online, Lawal says AI-powered tools such as language translation apps, grammar checkers, and speed recognition software will have access to information about Nigeria that has never been online before.
10: But we believe that by digitizing these papers, we're basically taking, like, Dark data—that is data that is inaccessible—and we are digitizing it and making it more accessible.
9: Last September, the nonprofit launched the first collection of documents and is currently trying to raise $100,000 to expand. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Lagos, Nigeria.
0: That's all we prepared for you this Monday, February 12, 2024. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of my producer, Kwame Ofori, and engineer, Chang, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. We'll leave you with this song, "My Mashakil, Sudan.
6: yo am a lay,
11: Editorial Reflecting the views of the United States government.
7: The United States has supported peace efforts in Africa for decades through its bilateral and multilateral diplomacy and by supporting humanitarian access and protection of vulnerable populations through peacekeeping, said Jonathan Pratt, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. In recent congressional testimony, the United States has made significant financial contributions to the United Nations, which has undertaken a number of peacekeeping missions in Africa to provide help in challenging situations, explained Deputy Assistant Secretary Pratt.
11: These missions have helped safeguard civilian populations from armed groups and warring parties, despite shortcomings and specific instances of unacceptable conduct by some peacekeepers
7: today we are seeing a desire from african leaders and the african union to take the lead on peacekeeping efforts said deputy assistant secretary pratt u.n security council resolution 2719 shifts peacekeeping responsibility to african partners with financial support from the united nations an essential element of u.n african union and sub-regional missions is that they include safeguards designed to promote respect for human rights Protection of civilians and humanitarian access, said Deputy Assistant Secretary Pratt.
11: AU and subregional missions have demonstrated a capacity to mobilize quickly, especially when provided with adequately financed and reliable logistical support mechanisms. Over time, we're seeing a trend towards subregional and bilateral missions, because of their ability to respond quickly, as well as address countries' national interest in combating instability in their neighborhood.
7: It is important that missions adhere to their mandates and international law, stressed Deputy Assistant Secretary Pratt. We have developed best practices for oversight and accountability mechanisms to ensure private contractors adhere to policy direction and comply with legal standards, said Deputy Assistant Secretary Pratt.
11: In contrast, this is not what Russia's Wagner Group is or does. In the countries where Wagner is present, we have seen the number of terrorist attacks and attacks on civilians increase, accompanied by a decrease in humanitarian access, as well as an increase in reports of human rights abuses.
7: The United States remains committed to advancing democracy, peace, and security as cornerstones for a successful U.S.-Africa partnership.
11: That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.